Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 466 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo, and if you're new to this podcast, welcome. I'm the CEO of the Australian Writer Centre and your host. We talk about all things to do with the world of writing, publishing, and how to succeed as an author or writer. So, what have you guys been up to? As we're all, you know, sliding into the end of January, I feel like it's about this time that we start thinking, if we haven't already, that we really need to get into the year ahead because school is going to go back, most workplaces are back in full swing, and our inboxes, well, my inbox anyway, um, are starting to receive messages from people who are already back at it and who want answers to their emails. I've just driven from Sydney to Melbourne, so that was epic, uh, and that's been what's been keeping me busy. For those of you who may be listening from overseas, that was a 10-hour drive. Now, I must admit, I have done this many times before, and usually with all of my pets, but my fluffies are staying at home in Sydney this time, being looked after by their dad, and I did a solo trip, which was quite lovely, actually, because I downloaded a bunch of audiobooks and podcasts uh, to listen to, to keep me occupied during the trip. But actually, I ended up mainly listening to the memoir, um, Will, by Will Smith and Mark Manson, thanks to a recommendation from Jill in the podcast listener community. Thanks, Jill. Um, Oh, and if you haven't yet joined our listener community on Facebook, then please do. Um, It's a fantastic, supportive place from um, with aspiring writers and established writers and emerging writers uh, from all over the world. And it's free to join. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community on Facebook um, and request to join. We'd love to have you in there. Anyhow, back to the audiobook. Yeah, I didn't quite listen to the audiobook, the Will Smith audiobook the whole time, you know, because that would have been 10 hours of Will Smith in my ears. If I felt like a bit of a change, um, I put on some Spotify or Apple Music, belted out some show tunes, which is actually great for staying alert on long stretches of boring bitumen on the Hume Highway. Um, It was mainly Book of Mormon, the musical, where I replayed my favourite song from that, Man Up, multiple times. I hate to think what all the truckies who were driving past were thinking and I, as I was um, singing at the top of my lungs. But back to Will Smith's memoir, it was narrated by Will Smith himself. Yes, the blockbuster movie star of films like Bad Boys, The Pursuit of Happiness, I Am Legend, Independence Day and of course Men in Black. He is also a rapper and famous for his breakout role in the TV sitcom The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. I mean, who could forget that, right? Now this is a story all about how my life got flipped, turned upside down. And I'd like to take a minute, just sit right there. I'll tell you how I became the prince of a town called Bel-Air. Kind of glad that I listened to the audiobook instead of reading it because it was wonderful to hear the words from the man himself. Also, when Will Smith was speaking, the dialogue, you know, of the other characters, in other words, like the what other people in his life were saying to him, um, like his grandmother or security guard or record producer or his friends or whoever, he could really embody their voices so well that you could really picture them. So those scenes were really brought to life a lot. And also the audiobook gave the opportunity to play music that Will was referring to because obviously he's a musician as well. Um, and obviously you can't do that in a printed book. 
So it's certainly a very different experience and an example of how audiobooks are adapting to the medium of sound. Previously, an audiobook was a straight reading of the printed book, you know, no bells, no whistles, no music, no sound effects, nothing out of the ordinary. But some audiobook producers are realizing that there is a lot of opportunity to do something a bit different because they can. Now, on another long road trip I did, I listened to, now this is a bit different, the memoir Little Black Stretchy Pants by Chip Wilson. Great title for a book because it's the memoir of the founder of Lululemon, you know, the ubiquitous activewear that you see in practically every Westfield and many other places um, where people buy their gym gear. I thought that this audiobook was done in a really clever way because it was narrated by the author himself, Chip Wilson. That wasn't the clever part. Uh, because within the book, whenever the author quoted someone else, you know, someone in his life, like a friend or a business partner or a relative or colleague or someone, he got the actual person to speak those words. So it really came to life because it was like it was being acted out by the real people. There's no doubt that audiobooks are going to continue to evolve. In fact, if you haven't caught up with uh, episode 439, I chat to Jack Heath about how he wrote his book, Kill Your Brother, as an audiobook. And then when it came time to release it as a printed book, he actually rewrote it because the different mediums were suited to different types of storytelling. Now, of course, the same story can work for both, but if you have the opportunity to adapt to what a particular medium is good at, you know, whether it's audio or text or whatever, then why not? So do let me know if uh, you've listened to audiobooks that have made the most out of the fact that it is audio. Did they do something different or innovative? I'd love to know. Let me know in the podcast community on Facebook. Now, one of our listeners in the podcast community on Facebook asked some advice about writing a police procedural. Now, if you're not sure what that is, a police procedural is a story where the focus is on how the police solve the crime as opposed to a crime thriller, which is, you know, more about tension and thrills and spills and spies and certain destruction of the world. Well, not quite, you know. The question was specifically about how police investigations are carried out in Australia. Uh, There were lots of suggestions from other writers and listeners. Um, You know, there are many excellent resources for crime writers once you start researching. So, for example, there's the official podcast of the Australian Police Journal. They have episodes on specific cases, talking with actual investigators and police who are involved, as well as episodes on topics such as Aboriginal trackers and search and rescue. Uh, We'll put a link in the show notes. Um, And actually, a lot of the state police departments also have their own podcasts. Just search for New South Wales Police Podcast or Victorian Police Podcast or whatever, and you should find them. Of course, there are loads of true crime podcasts out there, but it can be a good idea to start with these official sources first, as they're less likely interested in, you know, telling the juicy story and tend to focus more on the actual procedures, which is really what you need if you're researching this kind of thing. Pamela Freeman, who is one of our presenters here at the Australian Writers' Centre and our Director of Creative Writing and a research guru, also suggests that you look at the police commissioner handbooks for each state. These are literally the rule books for how police should conduct investigations and you can find copies in your state library. 
If you can't get to your state library, you know, just pop along to your local library and ask them. They may have the state police handbook available or they may be able to do an interlibrary loan for you. Local libraries are great resources. Another community member recommended looking at criminology courses at universities. These are the courses that police officers need to complete to become qualified. Now, a lot of unis will have their reading lists of course materials available online, so you can search through and find case studies or other information. Once upon a time when I was writing a book that um, had a little bit to do with forensic investigation, I actually came across a, you know, in a, in a white collar sense, I actually came across a conference that was exactly about that, about forensic investigations, forensic accounting, and so on. And I wrote to them and I said, hey, I'm writing this book um, and I want to make sure I get things right. Uh, I'm not actually part of the, you know, um, your 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 industry, but I want to make sure I represent it um, appropriately. And is it okay if I actually attend the um, conference? Um, um, I can't afford the fee, I said to them. And uh, they let me. I said to them, of course, that if the book um, got uh, got uh, uh, published, that I would credit them and so on. And they, they were very kind and generous to allow me. Um, and, and they waived the fee, which was a lot. And um, I went to the conference and, and learnt a lot. So that was great. Now, a great, another great place to start, fantastic place to start, really, is um, our course, Anatomy of a Crime, How to Write About Murder which is presented by best-selling crime and thriller author Candace Fox. Now, Candace gives examples from real-life investigations and breaks down how to research them and how to write about murder and law enforcement. So she actually does go through a lot of police procedure, specifically in respect to murder, um, and, and goes through the entire all the, the steps of a murder, right from premeditation to the actual murder to what happens to a crime scene uh, and, and what police would do after the murder has occurred. So you can check that out at writercentre.com.au slash murder to find out more writercentre.com.au slash murder. Now let's move on to some news from our alumni community, some graduates of the Australian Writers' Centre who are kicking goals and we're going to have a quick catch up with Penelope Janu. Clouds on the Horizon by Penelope Janu combines romance with a bit of suspense because basically it's about um, the protagonist is Phoebe Cartwright and she finds a naval officer and meteorologist in her town. She reckons she saved his life because he's frozen half to death in the middle of a thunderstorm. Uh, But he's actually in town in her small country town to track down members of an illegal horse racing syndicate. Now, Phoebe is uh, a much-loved member of the community, but she also learns that her younger sister could be implicated in their father's dishonest accounting for the syndicate. And she wants to work with the, the guy who's doing the investigation to uncover the truth. So there's mystery, there's romance, but, you know, Penelope, can you tell us what Clouds on the Horizon is about? I think I can just use the cover quote on the front from a very well-known Australian author, Carly Lane. Um, It sums up the story well. Clouds on the Horizon is a rural story that has it all. Simmering romance, international intrigue, a complex heroine and a swoon-worthy hero. What's not to love? 
Thank you, Carly, for that quote. How do you balance the suspense with the investigation in the story with the romance? Some people who don't read a lot of romance often have the misconception that um, uh, romance is just about love or about sex and that's about it. Um, But there can't be any romance, I think, unless um, you create a character that readers care about. The plot, the suspense are external conflicts that bring the main characters together um, and that test the strength of their relationship. So I think the two absolutely go together as far as um, plot, story and also um, the character arc, the character development and the romance that develops between them. When you write a story, you do have primary characters, you know, your protagonists, but you also have secondary characters that help you build the world that these characters live in and to bring the story to life. How do you build those secondary characters enough so that the reader actually cares about them, but not so much that they take away from the protagonist? I do love creating secondary characters and they're absolutely instrumental to bringing the main characters to life. Um, that's why they're so crucial to a well-told story. We learn about the primary characters and we make them real by creating realistic secondary characters. Does the main character like children? What kind of neighbour are they? How do they respond to stressful situations? All um, those things um, often can be learnt about a primary character through uh, their interactions with secondary characters. I love it when readers contact me and ask me, um, when is a certain secondary character going to get their own book? Um, often they don't get their own book, um, but I love that question anyway because um, I shows that I've created well-rounded secondary characters that readers relate to. Now, Penny, you are one of the most prolific authors I know. Ever since you first got published, you have been writing books and books and books. You are an active member of the of the publishing scene. I just want to know how you fit it all in. What kind of structure do you have to, you know, plan out your year so that you get so much done? Basically, I went to from a full time career in law um, to writing full time. Um, my children, I have a lot of children, but they're more grown up, so I guess I can devote a lot more time to writing than I might have been able to otherwise. It takes me about 10 or 11 months to write a manuscript I'm happy to be to submit to my publisher. What I tend to do during that 10 or 11 months, though, is I will have a structural edit, which will take me away from writing that new manuscript for six to eight weeks, and that structural edit will relate to the previous um, manuscript. Um, I'll also have copy edits and proofreading to do for that previous manuscript. So by the end of writing my draft of my new manuscript, um, the previous manuscript will be ready um, to be released as a book um, in the next couple of months. So it is really a cycle of um, writing a book in a year, but also editing and releasing a new book in a year. It's, it's a lot of work, but there's a lot of joy in that. It's certainly always a lot of joy in the writing, even if some of the other aspects are, are tricky to, to juggle sometimes. I hope you enjoyed our quick catch-up with Penelope Janu. I love seeing our alumni kicking goals. I just do a little happy dance every time I see some of the, our you know, former students who have now gone on to become fantastically established and successful authors. One of the fantastic things that Penelope also does is she's really part of the publishing community. She is out there, she's supporting other authors, and she is... Um, such a such a wonderfully supportive presence in the in the world of authors in Australia. So I wish her every every success. Now let's move on to our competition this week. This is a cracker, a publishing phenomenon. 
<laughs> the tree house, the tree house books by Andy Griffiths and Terry Denton are obviously one of the most successful franchises around, and we have three copies of the Bumper Treehouse Fun Book to give away. Something very fun for your kids. This fantastic book is packed with a whole heap of activities. There are pictures to draw, stories to write, codes to crack, Sudokos to solve colorings, dot to dots, mazes, crosswords, word searches, spot the differences, and some activities that we don't even have a name for. You'll be able to grab a pen, pencil, crayon, or spoonsel and be entertained for hours. Of course, it's brought to you by Andy Griffiths and Terry Denton, the dynamic duo behind the sales-breaking, award-winning Treehouse series. Now, Andy was uh, one of our very early writers in residence when we chatted to him back in episode 67. Entries close on the 31st of January. So go to writerscentre.com.au slash win uh, for your chance to enter. Just follow the instructions. Um, as I said, entries close on the 31st of January. Writercentre.com.au slash win. Now, guys, everyone, I hope I hear a collective yes. Are you ready for the word of the week? I hope so, because here it is. It is Bilbo. And no, I'm not talking about Bilbo Baggins, although it is spelt the same way as Bilbo Baggins. Bilbo, or usually Bilbo's, the plural, uh, B-I-L-B-O-E-S, is a long iron bar or bolt with sliding shackles and a lock. It's used to confine the feet of prisoners, most commonly used in ships. It was also a form of punishment, like putting someone in the stocks. And it's what the phrase, put him in irons, means. So it's a word you might use if you're writing a historical novel or a story set at sea. Bilbo. And that was the word of the week. If you're enjoying this podcast, you may also like the book that Alison Tate and I have written together called So You Want to Be a Writer, How to Get Started While You Still Have a Day Job. Full of practical tips, motivation and inspiration, it's ideal for anyone who's thinking of dipping their toes into the wonderful world of writing. We've created a blueprint for aspiring writers to follow and it's suitable regardless of whether you want to plunge straight into this new career or if you need to explore it while you're still busy in your day job. Let us hold your hand as you turn your dream into a reality. Buy your copy today at soyouwanttobeariter.com.au forward slash book. This week, our writer-in-residence is Australian author Kay Kerr, who was interviewed by my former co-host and podcast pal, Alison Tate. So the ghost of Alison is back for this episode in this interview. Kay's debut young adult novel, Please Don't Hug Me, came out in 2020, and her latest novel is Social Cue. Like her first novel, Social Cue is a funny, serious story about a young autistic woman navigating the world and the Children's Book Council of Australia called it one of the best books of the year. So here is Alison speaking with Kay Kerr. Australian freelance writer and author Kay Kerr was working on the first draft of her debut YA novel, Please Don't Hug Me, when she received her autism diagnosis. Please Don't Hug Me was published in 2020 and was shortlisted for an Australian Book Industry Award and was a Children's Book Council of Australia 2021 Notables book. Her second novel, Social Cue, is out now through text publishing. Welcome to the program, Kay. Thank you so much for having me. 
All right, so we're going to have a, a little, we're going to wind back a little to, into the mists of time. Was Please Don't Hug Me the first novel that you ever sort of sat down to write or had you been writing other things prior to that? I had been writing um, a couple of short stories and that kind of thing, but Please Don't Hug Me was the first novel as an adult that I ever um, tried to write. But I feel like that's disingenuous because you know, the emotional landscape of the story I knew was what I wanted to write, but in the process it was really learning how to actually structure a novel. So I changed everything from that first draft. You know, I wrote probably four or five full drafts before it started to resemble anything like a novel. Um, I changed the structure and I changed plot and characters and um, it wasn't like I was just editing and rewriting. I, I completely started again quite a few times just trying to make it look like the YA books I was picking up and reading and seeing what was sort of being published and trying to make it look like that because I had a lot of emotions and then I guess not a lot of plot to start with. So how long did it actually take you to to get yourself to a, a draft that you were happy to submit and, and that sort of thing? I think I did the math on it and I looked back and between when I first sent it um, to my agent uh, it was about four years of working on it, but I was working um, as a journalist at the time. So it wasn't four years full time. It was, uh, you know, in between you know, late at night and on weekends and that kind of thing. So, yeah, it was a long project. And it was an idea that you had carried with you for a long time? Yeah, I think I really wanted to explore um, that sort of time period, that end of high school, to try and understand what it was specifically that I struggled with at that time. And it just felt like very, um, just a very big moment, sort of, you know, all of those big life moments squeezed into this last three or four months of high school. And then all of a sudden you meant to come out the other side and be an adult. It just was something I really wanted to explore. So you, um, you received a, an autism diagnosis in the middle of writing this. Did it, did that have an impact on the writing of the novel? I think when I look back on it now, it's pretty easy to see that that was the, what I was writing myself toward. That's what I was trying to understand about myself. Um, and that's what I got from writing the book was understanding, um, that all of those struggles socially and, and sensory and processing, um, struggles that sort of came to a head at the end of high school was because I was undiagnosed as autistic. And so the writing process, um, I guess I had this new framework to go back and look at the story that I'd set out on the page and it was pretty obvious that my protagonist Erin was autistic because she was struggling with those those things that I struggled with as well. So um, I didn't change a lot of the plot after having that diagnosis but I did, I was able to insert the language around what was going on with her and, and give her sort of her own diagnosis so that she understood herself a little bit better than I probably did at that age. Do you think that's what made her so three-dimensional, the fact that you didn't sort of even realise at the time that you were necessarily writing an autistic heroine but the characteristics were, were there You were because you were sort of almost writing your own story? Yeah, yeah, and I think um, going back and processing, you know, those friendship struggles through this character and through different – the things that happened to her in the book don't happen to me, but mm. it was just a really sort of – um, a way to to get stuck into the the feelings of it with, and maybe shed some of the shame around those those mistakes or those um, miscommunications and that kind of thing. So, how did the book then come to be published? Like, at what was the? You said you you mentioned you had an agent. At what stage in the process did you get an agent, and how did it sort of go from there? Yeah. So I um I 
was pregnant and I sort of thought, oh, pregnancy is going to be this wonderful time to finish working on this thing and finally submit it before I um, have my baby. And it felt like a, nine months felt like a very firm deadline to work on it. Um, and then I had hyperemesis throughout my pregnancy, which is where I was sick every day and in hospital. And my morning sickness was basically all day, every day for nine months. So I didn't look at the project oh. at all. <laughs> That's awful. <laughs> and then, um, and then my daughter, my daughter was then coming up to her first birthday. So that first year was kind of just this big haze. And then that one year birthday kind of felt like this new deadline where I wanted to, to start doing with doing something with it. Um, and I saw, I, you know, I was following lots of love Osya people on Twitter and that kind of thing, just trying to figure out how to do it. And I'd made a spreadsheet of, you know, agents and publishers and that kind of thing. Um, but I saw Danielle Binks tweeting about doing, um, an agent, like a speed dating kind of thing, almost at the CYA conference in Brisbane, where you, you send them the first 10 or 20 pages of a manuscript and you sit down with, them for five or 10 minutes and, and they give you some feedback and give you some advice on, on sort of what to do with it to, to shape it up or, you know, where to pitch it. So I entered that and I think it was like the week before it was due to be held or it was quite, quite a last minute decision. I remember anyway. Um, and Danielle was the only person that I'd booked in with and I hadn't even sent it, you know, thought about sending it out to publishers or anything, but, um, I sat down with Danielle and she said, I want to see the whole manuscript. And so it was really like, really, I guess, good timing and fortunate sort of, um, series of events. And then she signed me from, from that full manuscript and, and we went from there. So you had the full, you, you were at the point of that, at that stage of having a full manuscript that you were happy with? I had reached the point where I wasn't sure what else to do with it. Like I felt, I felt like I had worked on it as much as I could. And the changes that I was making were starting to feel like I was just making changes, not necessarily making it any better. Like I couldn't make it any better on my own. So I think I was starting to look for feedback for other people that I guess um, might be able to tell me how, how to shape it up a little bit more or what to do next. So you mentioned that you were sort of writing in the middle of the night. You mentioned that you are someone you know, that you had written, you know, quite a few drafts and that they were big drafts, like restructures, you know, different characters, all of that sort of thing. Um, is that sort of your writing process? Like did your writing process change when it came to writing your second novel? I think going through the editing process with Please Don't Hug Me gave me a lot more understanding and insight into what a novel actually is supposed to be structured like and what that process is going to be like if if your plot's kind of, you know, I, I needed two big structural edits on Please Don't Hug Me with my, with my publisher to get it ready for publication. So, um, I was a lot more aware of, of the work that goes into it. So, I think, I think my second... Pro- process was different and I, and I wonder if it's just going to be different for me each time or if I'm going to fall back onto how it went with the second book but with that book I think I gave myself parameters so that I was not that I plotted it out because I'm still kind of like a write it and how and see how it goes but I did less drafts the second time around because I sort of had an idea of, of structure a little bit more. What is it that draws you to writing sort of young adult fiction do you think? I think I feel very connected to the emotions of those years. They feel like such a huge time and those are the books that I love to read, sort of coming-of-age stories and self-discovery and, um, yeah, those are themes that I just love to read and so therefore that kind of naturally keeps me in that space writing as well. Like I, I want to write in other sort of readerships eventually as well but YA kind of feels like 
like home, like the comfortable place where I think that I will always come back to just because, yeah, those books as well are growing up reading YA. They're the books that have stuck with me the most and have been um, the most influential on my work. So it just feels like a natural place to stay. All right, so let's let's talk about Social Cue, which is your new novel. Like, what, what's the what's the elevator pitch? Yeah, so um, in Social Cue, uh, my protagonist Zoe, she's just finished high school and she's in her first uh, semester at university. She's studying um, writing and she's doing an internship at an online media publication. Um, and she writes a piece about how not having had any romantic experience in high school has left her fe- feeling like. Um, she's been thrown in the deep end joining dating apps um, as an 18-year-old. Um, so she, that piece goes viral and then people from her past come out of the woodwork to tell her that they did have, you know, romantic interest in her, but she's just missed the signs of that. So she goes back um, to each one of these people from her past to reconnect and to write a little bit about why she missed those signs and, uh, and hopefully to, you know, find love as well. So was this something like, um, you know, you said your process was different because you had been through the through that sort of big structural edits, et cetera, with Please Don't Hug Me. But did you did you suffer from second novel syndrome with this when it came to actually writing the novel? Or was it like the first book where you had a, you know, you, you sort of mentioned that you had a lot of emotion in that book, that you started with the emotion. Did you do the same with this one? I did, but I think the um, the key was that I wrote quite a few manuscripts between Please Don't Hug Me and Social Cue that just didn't work out. Sort of, I think about three or four full manuscripts, and another that kind, another couple that kind of petered out around the twenty or thirty thousand word mark. So, wow. yeah, there was a lot, um, a lot of writing, and I think that's probably probably those books were my my second book uh, syndrome. But then. With social cue, because the idea kind of landed fully formed and it had the structure of these people from her past that she was going to go back and reconnect with, the actual writing of it was quite straightforward, I guess, because I was writing from from person to person, and that kind of made the the structure of the novel. Did as an as sort of an, an own voices author, can you put into words why own voices novels are so important in the wider publishing landscape? Yeah, I think um, I feel safe when I pick up a, a book that's written by an autistic author with autistic characters, safe in knowing that the representation, even if it's not my exact experience, that it's going to be um, treated with understanding and with care. And um, I just, yeah, I, I think not that I only read own voices novels, but I just think that there's an extra level of of understanding and and those stories, you know, historically have, have been told by people not living those experiences. So I think it's important um, also to to give platforms to people who have those lived experiences um, to tell those stories. So you you are in fact a passionate advocate for autism and wider disability representation in you know YA fiction in particular. Um, so I imagine you you're doing a lot of interviews, uh, which is something that a lot of authors do struggle with. How do you prepare for them? And do you think the fact that you've worked as a journalist helps you navigate that sort of media landscape more easily? I think it probably does in just knowing the logistics of how things work, which definitely helps me to process um, and to to be able to do it. But it's strange. I really, I enjoy interviews, but then they terrify me. Uh, I love, like, I love connecting with an interviewer and then from that, you know, with an audience, but then 
I put a lot of pressure on myself as well to use a platform that I'm given wisely and to make sure that the things that I'm saying um, are helpful to the wider autism and disability community. And it also takes a lot out of me just uh, mentally, like I just being autistic means I need a lot of rest after doing things like interviews or, or events. So it's a bit of a juggle, um, but I really, I really do enjoy it. That's the thing. It's hard to explain that it can be difficult and enjoyable. Um, yeah, but Zoom, I th- last year was, you know, so much of it was Zoom events. So I think in a way, as much as the pandemic has not been a wonderful time, having my first novel come out at that time, it was like, I guess, like a bit of a test run for me. Like I I was able to do all of these events and things from the comfort of my home. And so with my second novel, now that I've sort of gotten a little bit more experience um, around doing interviews and, and I've gotten a little bit more, I guess, confident and sort of yeah practiced now that I'm doing in-person events I'm more comfortable in those spaces than I maybe would have been if that was what I was doing first time around yes you don't feel quite as exposed when you're sitting um in your own space uh you know with with a zoom thing do you as as when you're standing in front of people I think you know with a lot of people looking at you I think it's quite a different environment yeah and I think all that social energy that you expend before at an event before you actually even start talking like you you, the mingling and the small talk and that's the stuff that I find to be the most difficult so when it's actually just questions about the work or questions about writing those kinds of things are easier for me to dive into than the the small talk so yeah so what sort of things um do you do to promote your novels like you mentioned zoom stuff are you are you active on social media are you sort of like what how how do you choose to kind of spend your uh marketing slash publicity time yeah, social media has been really good. I think the best advice somebody gave me, and I can't remember who it was, but they said to to choose one or two platforms and do them well as opposed to trying to spread yourself across all of the platforms. So yeah. so face, Facebook isn't something that I use anymore. Uh, I closed my account down, you know, maybe five years ago. So I made a choice not to, to reactivate that as a writer, which I, I know there's a lot of sort of community and opportunity available there, but it's just not a space that I enjoy. I, I'm, I use Twitter and Instagram a bit more and I think those work for me and, and that way I can kind of engage and have conversations and do it in an authentic way that feels natural to me as opposed to trying to force something that just, yeah, doesn't work for me. So social media has been great. I think there's a really strong autistic and disability community online too, which is wonderful. Do you, um, uh, with sort of things opening up again now, uh, have you been sort of doing more face-to-face stuff? And, um, I mean, the last couple of years haven't been great for school visits, but are they something that you'll look at doing in 2022? Yeah, I think I've done a grand total of one school visit Ooh. today. Um, <laughs> How did it go? But I loved it. Like, um, it, it was a shame not to be able to do them last year, but I'm really excited. My calendar's starting to to fill up for next year and I'm really looking forward to that because there is something about engaging with young people face-to-face and in small groups that I really enjoy. I also run a writing group for autistic teenagers um, on the Sunshine Coast, which I really love doing. So, um, yeah, I'm really excited about school visits and I feel sad that they haven't been something I've been able to engage in too much up till now. So you have a family and you also write for other publications. How do you fit the sort of writing your novels, you know, into your day? Like what does a kind of typical day look like for you? Yes, with difficulty. Um, <laughs> I, 
my daughter's at kindy now so she she goes three days a week um so that's kind of my time but it's really easy to eat into that time like doing housework or groceries or you know just errands and random miscellaneous life admin so I have to be um quite strict with myself about setting um time timelines and that kind of thing especially um, sitting down first thing and writing and then letting the other stuff happen after because if I do it the other way around, if I jump straight into the house and life stuff, it, I find it very hard to then switch over to writing later mm. in the day. So um, I've been going to my local library recently. Um, they've got a space upstairs and sort of hidden off to the side where you can write and it's very quiet and the act of taking myself there as opposed to being in the home, something about that switches in my brain just like a good I'm I'm here to work now and I find I'm getting a lot of work done doing that so are you trying to like do you set yourself a word count or do you just sort of set aside a certain amount of time or how do you kind of like how do you decide you've done for the day so to speak yeah so I I set if I'm working on a on a manuscript I will try I'll set myself just a, a very achievable word count um because I do find that once I hit that kind of mental burnout like there's no point in writing any more words after that it's because they're just not going to be of any value so Mm. if I set something low like 1,000 words for example um then I know I can get there and if I'm still in the flow at that point I can keep going but um if I need to stop then I don't feel like I've failed I don't know I yeah setting myself goals they need to be goals I can achieve otherwise that sort of feeling like I failed and therefore being disheartened just yeah disheartened with the project happens pretty quickly so are you are you working do you have a a book that you're working on at the moment that's coming out like is it have you got deadlines and things or are you sort of just exploring new ideas or you know what are you currently working on yeah so I'm working on I've got a manuscript that I'm working on and then I've got um I've signed for a non-fiction book that's going to come out in 2023 um so that's going to keep me busy probably for the majority of next year but in between that I've also got another YA that I'm I'm playing around with and I think because it's it's not what I'm meant to be working on at the moment it's very enticing to want to work on the thing (laughs) yeah exactly do you think Um, any of you like you mentioned that you wrote um several or started several manuscripts between please don't hug me and social cue do you think any of those will ever kind of resurface for you I think I can see even in the new one that I'm working on, I can see themes um, coming through that were in those manuscripts. But I think I feel like I abandoned them or I stopped working on them for a reason. I feel like there just wasn't – like when Social Cue was written, I could tell straight away that it was one that I wanted to send to my agent and to my publisher, whereas I didn't have that feeling with the other one. So I think mm. – unfortunately, I think I need to see a project – through to mm. a certain point before I can really tell if it's yeah I'm with you yeah. that's, that's my problem as well it's kind of you end up writing an awful lot of words sometimes that don't necessarily go anywhere but I always feel that they're words that you know you, you need to write to find out what the new direction might be do you think yeah that that in like looking back that's how I feel about it and even the manuscript I'm working on now if that turns out to be not a book that's okay it's something that I'm working on it and I'm enjoying the process of, of writing and that kind of thing so I, yeah although yeah. at the time it is frustrating to think about the words lost but I'm just trying to think of it as training I guess 
Yeah, I, th- I think it's just, you know, building the muscle, isn't it? But it's an yeah. interesting question because it's something that a lot of um, uh, newer writers, you know, ask is that question of how do you know an idea has legs? Like how do you know it's going to take you to the end? And I think sometimes you actually have to just see how far it will go before you realise it's not going to get there. Yeah, I wish there was a shortcut. I wish I could look at an idea when I'm, you know, writing a synopsis or, you know, a little plan of what the story is going to be or what I want to write. I wish I could tell then that's going to work or that's not going to work. But I, I, yeah, that's just not what works for me. Well, if you, I'm just going to say, if you get to that secret, if you find that, if you could just come (laughs) back and tell us all what it is, that would be awesome. Um, Well, it's been absolutely lovely talking to to you today, Kay. Where can people find you online? Yep, so I'm on Instagram and Twitter as Kerr, and my website is kerr.com. Fantastic. <laughs> All right, and we're going to finish up today with our, you know, infamous last question. Uh, what are your three top tips for writers? I don't know that they're going to be very original, but these are what <laughs> um, I stick with, which um, the first one I would say would be prioritise the writing because this is something that I can get caught up in. It's easy to get caught up in the other stuff social media or the the research or the background stuff but prioritizing the writing is something that I have to keep reminding myself like I didn't I didn't even have a website when I signed my first book and all of that stuff can come after the writing I guess if, if the writing takes priority um the second would be to read widely I know that's probably what everybody says but um that yeah just rings true for me especially in the the readership or the genre that you're writing in if you don't know what is there then it's kind of hard to write I think um and third would be to keep moving and and to not get sort of hung up on the the one project and, and putting all your eggs in that basket like like the many many manuscripts that I have in bottom drawers I think I just have to keep writing the next thing and working on that and looking forward excellent well, thank you very much and uh, best of luck with Social Cue and with your non-fiction book and with the manuscript that you're currently working on <laughs> and we look forward to seeing what comes next. Thank you so much for having me. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. If you're serious about completing your own novel manuscript, immerse yourself in our inspiring and motivational six-month program, Write Your Novel. Filled with weekly workshopping and practical lessons, you'll receive advice on structure, dialogue and much more, as well as tips on publishing. The online program fits around your weekly schedule and you'll get extensive personal feedback from your classmates and tutor throughout the program. Here's what Frances Chapman says. Hi, I'm Frances Chapman and I've done several courses at the Australian Writers' Centre. I was looking for a course that uh, would introduce me to other people who would be able to tell me if, if it was any good or if I was on the right track. I first enrolled in a creative writing course at the Australian Writers' Centre and I really liked the tutor of that course so I had, an, had another look and she was doing a um, six month write your novel course the next year and I was also pregnant and so I was on maternity leave and I thought oh this would be a great opportunity to focus on my writing. The course was so valuable in so many ways. I felt found writing such a solitary, lonely pursuit in some ways. And this gave me an opportunity to meet other people who were going through the same kind of process. And I found some people who were willing to give me some really constructive and helpful feedback on what I was writing. 
The other thing that was really valuable in that course was learning some of the fundamentals of storytelling. I was a very sort of intuitive writer, but the actual building blocks of telling a story, that was not something that I knew anything about. Um, these were things I'd really struggled with and that course gave me some of those fundamentals. I was so fortunate to be shortlisted for the Amsterdam Prize. And then about a week or so later, she called me and said that I was the winner. And I was trying so hard to be cool. <laughs> and I, um, I jumped up and down and I made like little noises, but not into the phone. And into the phone, I was saying, yes, that's, yes, that sounds fine. That would be great. Yes, lovely. Okay. But inside, I was just hyperventilating. My debut novel, Stars Like Us, is about a teenage rock band who hit the big time and things don't go as planned. It's a whirlwind adventure and I'm really excited about it. So I'm always writing, but I keep two days to myself a week for my fiction writing. I think putting boundaries around your time is really important. It's really important to sit down and take that time for yourself to write. You're not a writer if you don't have any readers. That's the role that workshopping plays in bridging that gap. I would highly recommend any courses at the Australian Writers Centre. Any author can, at any stage of their career can benefit from hearing the input of other writers. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash novel writing. That brings us to the end of this week's episode. I'm still in Melbourne after my 10-hour drive and I will at some point be driving 10 hours back. So no doubt I will have uh, some more audiobooks to report back on. Anyhow, I hope you're all well. Feel free to connect with me on social media. You'll find me on Instagram at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, or on Twitter and over at ValerieKoo.com. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writercentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more. <laughs>